Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 138 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I just want to thank everyone who checked out the last episode, my deep dive into the multiple brave and slightly crazy people who've taken a run at jumping their motorcycles over the famed fountains of Caesar's Palace. From Evil Knievel to Gary Wells to Travis Pastrana, it was a blast getting to share their stories with you. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 137, a cunning display of stunts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. It's time for another world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report. For this episode, I'll be recapping my most recent trip to Las Vegas from December 11th to 16th, 2022, my third and final trip of the year. My wife was along for the ride this time around, and I gotta say this was one of the best Vegas trips we've had in a very long time. It was also a trip that featured a lot of firsts for us. We stayed at a hotel we've never stayed at before, we ate at a bunch of restaurants we've never eaten at before, and we checked out a few new shows along the Strip. That being said, we did also visit a few of our usual haunts as well. In addition to the standard hotel, restaurant, and show reviews that I provide in these trip reports, I've got a few extra thoughts and general observations to add, and as per usual, you'll be able to find those at the end of the episode. So, without any further delay, let's get things going. I'll begin the trip report with my hotel experience. For this trip, my wife and I decided to stay at the Paris. It's somewhere that we've never stayed, but have always wanted to stay. And it just so happened that I had comp nights for the property, so we decided to give it a go. For those not familiar with Vegas geography, the Paris Las Vegas is located mid-strip along Las Vegas Boulevard. It's directly across the street from the Bellagio and sandwiched in between Planet Hollywood to the south and Bally's, now Horseshoe Las Vegas, to the north, which it's actually connected to via a passageway. Paris is also hard to miss since the resort features a half-scale replica of the Eiffel Tower and a two-thirds scale replica of the Arc de Triomphe. Fun fact about the Paris, original plans for the hotel actually called for a full-scale replica of the Eiffel Tower, but due to objections from the FAA over the hotel's proximity to nearby Harry Reid International Airport, the tower size was reduced to its current half-scale, which still stands at a whopping 540 feet. My wife and I arrived into Vegas early afternoon, and we were at the Paris by around 2.30 p.m., Now, even though our room was ready and available, they still wanted to charge us the early check-in fee of $25. Normally, I'd have said forget it, stored my bags with the bell desk, and then come back at check-in time, but we were both up early for the flight, 
We were tired and we just wanted to get up to the room to freshen up. As for the room, we'd booked a burgundy room with one king bed. This is pretty much the standard basic room at the Paris. We were on the 20th floor at the very end of the hallway with our room facing northeast, looking at the backside of Bally's. If I'm being totally honest, the room actually seemed smaller than rooms that I've had at other properties, but it was well appointed with all the usual furnishings, a dresser, small wardrobe closet, desk and chair, and it did have a mini fridge, which I always appreciate having to store snacks and drinks. The room we were given was one of the older rooms that hasn't been renovated as of yet, and you could definitely tell. The carpet, paint, wallpaper, and furniture were all quite worn and showing their age. Now, to be fair, this was partly by our own doing. The newly renovated rooms only have showers in the bathrooms, and my wife, who is currently recovering from a foot injury and also has some back and shoulder issues, wanted to have a tub in the room so that she could take baths to loosen up at the end of the day. At some point in the future, I would love to give Paris another go so that I can check out the newly renovated rooms. As for the overall resort, the Paris is an excellent property. There's lots of great dining options on site, including Mon Ami Gabi, Gordon Ramsay Steak, the Eiffel Tower Restaurant and Beer Park, as well as recent additions, The Bedford by Martha Stewart, Vanderpump à Paris, Bobby's Burgers by Bobby Flay, and Nobu. Of course, there's also lots of spots in the Paris to grab a quick bite if you're just wanting to do a fast grab and go. As mentioned previously, the location of the Paris is awesome. You're pretty much dead center of the Strip, so you've got easy access to everything along Las Vegas Boulevard. You can step right out the front door and be in the middle of the action. There's also a bus stop right out front, so if you're feeling adventurous and want to hop the deuce to head downtown or to the outlet malls, you can. Or you can take a quick walk over to the Horseshoe, formerly Bally's, and out the back to the Las Vegas monorail, where you can go as far north as the Sahara or south to the MGM Grand. Overall, we had an excellent experience staying at the Paris, and I would highly recommend it for your next Las Vegas vacation. Next up, it's time to talk about what is easily my favorite part of every single one of my Vegas trips, the food. My wife and I were in town for five nights on this trip, which meant plenty of opportunities to try several new spots and visit a couple of our favorite spots from previous trips as well. Let's start with the repeats. First, Rira Irish Pub at Mandalay Bay. This officially marks the ninth time that I've mentioned Rira on the podcast, and I'm beginning to think they should start paying me for advertising. Anyway, my wife and I popped in here for a couple of drinks and a quick bite to eat after seeing a show at New York, New York. As usual, the service was awesome, beer was great, and live entertainment with the Black Donnellys was excellent as always. Latai, downtown on Fremont Street East. Latai has become an annual tradition for us. We usually go here for dinner with a friend of ours before heading to his weekly gig at Don't Tell Mama, the piano bar in Neonopolis at the Fremont Street Experience. Latai is consistently ranked as one of the best, if not the best, Thai food spots in Las Vegas, beating out places that are fancier and much higher priced. They've got a ton of four and five star reviews on TripAdvisor and Google, and those are extremely well earned. They've got a huge menu for you to pick from, and once you've chosen your dish, you can choose your spice level, and you're all set. 
I had the crab and cream cheese rangoon and mixed vegetable stir fry with shrimp. And my wife had the short rib fried rice considered to be their signature dish. The service was super quick. The quality was amazing and the prices are excellent. And Village Pub Cafe at Ellis Island. We always make a trip over to Ellis Island for a bite to eat, usually breakfast, as we find that's the best bang for our buck. Maybe it's just me, but I think you're going to have a really tough time finding anything on or near the strip that matches the value at Ellis Island. My wife and I both had the cinnamon vanilla French toast, although she got hers with the strawberry sauce. We split a side of bacon, I had a coffee, and she had a tea. All in, with a tip, it was just over 30 bucks. By comparison, and I always like to throw this comparison in, the day before, we went to Starbucks to start our day. Grande peppermint mocha, grande soy chai latte, pumpkin loaf, and a coffee cake, that was $23. As an aside, I always recommend hitting Ellis Island early, as they do tend to get very busy as the morning goes on. However, they have started to use the bar area as restaurant seating, so that has definitely eased up the wait a little bit. Now, for the new-to-us spots that we checked out on this trip, and there are quite a few, as we wanted to make a point of trying out places that we'd never been to on previous trips, just so we could have something different. First, it's Lucille's Smokehouse Barbecue at Red Rock Resort and Casino. My wife and I had never been out to Red Rock, and we have friends who live nearby in Summerlin who were planning on connecting with us for dinner. Rather than making them drive to the Strip to meet us, we decided to head out in their direction. Lucille's was their choice, and I can honestly say it's some of the best barbecue that I've had in Las Vegas. Lucille's has a huge menu with tons of great options for everyone. To start, they brought out fresh biscuits for the table with homemade apple butter, and for my meal, I went with the two-meat combo with brisket burnt ends and the Alabama chicken and had baked beans as my side. The food was outstanding, very flavorful, and well-seasoned. Portion sizes were perfect, and it was nice to not walk out of a restaurant feeling absolutely stuffed. I should also mention the service was great, and the prices at Lucille's were very reasonable. Next, it's Roy Choi's best friend at Park MGM. We've walked past this place in Park MGM a million times and have always wanted to try it, and it was great to finally get the chance. From the front entrance, it looks like a little convenience store. However, there is a whole restaurant in the back area that I had no idea was even there. Atmosphere back there was pretty cool, albeit a little loud. Now, maybe my wife and I are just getting old, but that was really the only complaint we had. Everything on the menu served up family style, so I would recommend going there with someone so you can share with them. They brought out some amazing steamed buns to start, then it was on to the main courses. My wife and I had the mixed tempura, the Kogi short rib tacos, and the slippery shrimp. The food was excellent. Everything was extremely tasty with a nice amount of spice. The service was also awesome. Our server was very attentive and our food was out really quick. Now, in some of the reviews that I've read, people have commented about the prices saying they thought it was expensive. Honestly, for the amount of food and the quality, I'd say it was good value and right in line with pretty much any other Vegas restaurant. Next, Yellowtail Restaurant and Lounge at the Bellagio. This is another one of those spots that we've walked past a bunch of times and have always wanted to try. 
Yellowtail is one of celebrity chef Akira Back's restaurants, meaning you're in for an amazing menu of traditional Japanese cuisine, along with some contemporary dishes and a little bit of Korean essence as well. The atmosphere in the restaurant is amazing. The main dining room looks right out on the lake and the Bellagio fountains. There is outside dining available as well, so you can sit lakeside and see the fountain show up close. The food at Yellowtail was, as expected, outstanding. We had the gyoza to start, which my wife described as the best gyoza she's ever had. I had the braised Wagyu beef short ribs. My wife had the broiled Atlantic black cod, and we shared an order of the crispy kimchi Brussels sprouts. To drink, my wife went with a glass of wine, and I tried their banana blossom cocktail. Now, by no means was this a cheap meal, but in my opinion, it was worth every single penny. It was an amazing dining experience, and if you enjoy Asian cuisine, I would highly recommend you give it a try. And last but not least, the steakhouse at Circus Circus. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Circus Circus? Yes, Circus Circus. Let's just get this part out of the way. It's true. Circus Circus is old, dingy, dirty, dilapidated, and in desperate need of either a massive renovation or possibly an implosion. Now, that being said, I've had people telling me for years that Circus Circus was home to one of the best steakhouses in Las Vegas. I've heard this from both locals and tourists. And a quick search online of both Google and TripAdvisor reveal a ton of four and five star reviews with lots of positive experiences. So my wife and I decided to check it out for ourselves and see if there was any truth to the rumors. And I'm happy to report that the steakhouse at Circus Circus is legit. The atmosphere is very old school Vegas with servers in tuxedos, dim lighting, dark green carpeting, and big red leather booths. And just for fun, the steaks are grilled right in the middle of the restaurant. Dinner at the steakhouse includes fresh bread to start, your choice of either super salad, chef's vegetable, and either garlic mashed potato, a baked potato, or a wild rice blend. My wife and I both had the bone-in ribeye with her having the baked potato and me having the garlic mashed potato. We also shared an order of the sautéed mushrooms. To drink, my wife had the house Merlot and I had a chocolate martini. And even though we were both stuffed after our meals, we gave dessert a shot. I had the chocolate mousse cake and my wife had the chocolate-covered strawberries. Overall, this was an awesome dining experience. The service was fantastic. The steaks were cooked absolutely perfectly, and everything was delicious. Now, to give you fair warning, if you do decide to partake in the steakhouse at Circus Circus, be aware this is not going to be an inexpensive meal. For my wife and I, for dinner, drinks, and dessert, all in with a tip, we paid about $290. But that's pretty much in line with our previous steakhouse experiences in Vegas at both the Golden Steer and Oscars at the Plaza downtown. And if I'm being honest, I would rate the steakhouse at Circus Circus right up there with those two spots. If you don't believe me, try it for yourself on your next trip. Okay, time to talk about my other favorite part of my Vegas vacations, the shows. My wife and I love checking out the entertainment scene when we're in Las Vegas, 
And this trip was no different. We were fortunate enough to be able to take in a show almost every night we were in town and saw some absolutely amazing talent. Let's begin with one of our favorites, the Monday's Dark ninth anniversary show at the Palms. Frequent listeners to the podcast know all about Monday's Dark, but in case you're new here, I'll give you the quick rundown. Monday's Dark is a twice-monthly charity show hosted by Mark Chinook, held at The Space, just off the strip at the corner of Polaris and Harmon. Each show features a different musical theme, and some of the best entertainers in Las Vegas volunteer their time and talent to come out and perform and help raise $10,000 for a local Las Vegas charity. Once a year, the Monday's Dark team celebrates the show's anniversary with a big blowout bash. Over the last few years, the event has been held at Virgin Hotels, previously the Hard Rock Hotel, but this year they made the move over to the Pearl Theater at the Palms. My wife and I have attended the last few Monday's Dark anniversary shows, and they've all been great in their own way, but I can honestly say that this was the best anniversary show ever. In the past, the event hasn't focused on the music and performers so much, and more so on the actual charitable aspect of Monday's Dark. This time, though, it was a totally different story. The ladies of fantasy at the Luxor came out, kicked it all off, and things just never really stopped from there. Other performers included Reckless in Vegas, The Bronx Wanderers, Sky D. Miles, Clint Holmes, and Daniel Emmett, as well as special appearances by Freestyle Love Supreme, comedian Ian Bagg, and the cast of Bad Outta Hell, the musical. This was an absolutely epic show, and it was such a blast to be a part of. Plus, my wife and I were lucky enough to be invited to the VIP-only after-party at the recently reopened Ghost Bar on the 55th floor of the Palms, featuring an absolutely stellar view of the Vegas Strip. We are already counting down the days to next year's show, celebrating the 10th anniversary of Monday's Dark. Next, it's Cirque du Soleil's Mad Apple at New York, New York. First off, this is not your typical Cirque du Soleil show. If you're going into this expecting to see something like O or Ka or Love, you're going to be sorely disappointed, like so many people who've posted negative reviews on TripAdvisor apparently have been. The idea behind the show is that you're going to be taken through a crazy night in New York City. It starts with a bar on stage, which is accessible to the audience for about 45 minutes before the show begins. There's a sword swallower, a juggler, a hair aerialist. That's a woman who literally swings in the air by her hair. Acrobats slam dunking basketballs, a stand-up comedian who also serves as your host and MC for the night, and so much more. There's also some very cool New York-themed music involved in the show, brought to life by a full-on five-piece band who, unlike other productions, don't remain shackled to the bandstand or hidden away. At several points during the show, they are out on the stage and even in the audience as a focal point in the performance. If you're looking for something different to see while you're in Vegas, I would highly recommend Mad Apple. But again, just make sure you're in the right frame of mind for the show. Also, keep in mind that this Cirque show might not be for the whole family. Minimum age of admission is 16 years old, and there might be some parts that are a little raunchy for grandma or grandpa. We also checked out Reckless in Vegas at the Sahara. My wife and I were lucky enough to be guests of the band, and I can honestly say this was one of the coolest shows that we've seen in a long time. 
fronted by Michael Shapiro, who was a guest of the podcast back on episode number 129, Reckless in Vegas is vintage Vegas music with a modern rock twist. Reckless in Vegas takes the audience on a musical journey through the history of Las Vegas with standards from the likes of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Elvis Presley, but they put a modern spin on it, adding their own touches to the tracks. They also put together some very cool mashups. For example, I never would have thought that mixing Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking with Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love would turn out as cool as these guys make it. Reckless in Vegas features a full band, complete with a horn section, as well as backup singers and backup dancers. The onstage chemistry is outstanding, and you can tell that everyone is having a blast. And to top it all off, the show we saw took place in the legendary Sahara Theater, where Reckless in Vegas has held residency for the last six months. This room has played host to some of the biggest names to play Vegas and has also been the site of several live album recordings, including Live at the Sahara, Las Vegas, 1964 by Tony Bennett and Live in Las Vegas, Volume 2 from Sonny and Cher. Unfortunately, this residency wrapped up right at the end of 2022, so your chance to see the band at the Sahara has come to a close. However, Reckless in Vegas is very active in the Las Vegas entertainment scene, so you shouldn't have too much of a problem catching them on your upcoming Vegas vacation. And finally, Bat Out of Hell, the musical at the Paris. I was super stoked to see this show. My wife and I are both huge fans of Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, so we were really looking forward to checking it out. For those not in the know, Bat Out of Hell the Musical, which opened at the Paris Theatre back in September, is a show written and conceived by composer Jim Steinman, based on songs originally performed by Meatloaf on the classic albums Bat Out of Hell and Bat Out of Hell 2. So what do we think? Well... The cast does an amazing job of bringing the songs to life on stage. Vegas veterans Travis Clower and Ann Martinez, who was a guest on the podcast back on episode number 133, as well as newcomers Elise Cruz and Travis Cormier, are absolutely outstanding. And they're backed by a phenomenal group of supporting performers as well. Everyone belts out these songs like they've been singing them forever. All the big meatloaf hits are here. Bow Out of Hell, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, I'd Do Anything for Love, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which, by the way, is easily the standout number of the show as performed by Ann Martinez and Travis Clower. Absolutely awesome. The staging is incredible. The set pieces, special effects, pyro, and lighting are all awesome and come together nicely. Sadly, shortly after we returned from our trip, it was announced that Battle to Hell the Musical would be closing on January 1st, 2023. Despite the incredible cast and amazing music, Bad Out of Hell had a lot working against it. First off, the storyline came across a little disjointed and hard to follow. I'd say a majority of that comes from the fact that they cut the show down to a tight 90 minutes from the original epic two and a half hour running time that people who have seen the show on Broadway and in London had. As such, you're ditching dialogue and songs that help to move the show along and keep people engaged. Why was the show cut like this? Simple. It's Vegas. Vegas casino owners don't want a huge crowd of people sitting in a theater watching a show for two and a half hours when they should be out on the floor spending money at the tables and slots. And trust me, if a show happens to run late and go over that 90-minute running time, producers hear about it from the casino. In addition, it doesn't help that even though Jim Steinman was a musical genius, he was also a bit of an eccentric lunatic, and I'd say that was somewhat on full display with this show. 
Unless you were in the know on what the storyline was supposed to be, sort of a Romeo and Juliet meets Peter Pan with a lot of subtle nods to the world of Neverland, the whole thing came across as a bit of a meatloaf fever dream. And I know that when my wife and I were leaving the show, we saw a lot of confused faces in the theater. Also, my understanding is that audiences for the show were quite light right from the start. The Paris Theater is a huge venue. I think it's up around 1,400 people. And the night that we were there, it was maybe half full. And I'm thinking that there were a lot of complimentary ticket holders in the crowd. Full disclosure, my tickets were comps from the publicists. With the cast size, production size, and venue size, I'm thinking Battle to Hell was a very expensive show to produce, and knowing what it costs to run and make money with a small-scale show on the Vegas Strip, I can't even begin to imagine how much this show was costing, and you can't make money or even break even if you're only half-filling the theater and giving away a majority of your tickets. Sadly, I think that the short run and early closing of Battle to Hell signals the end of the day of the musical on the Vegas Strip, and it might be some time before we see another attempt at a show like this in any of the major resorts. My wife and I usually try to check out a museum or two while we're in Vegas, and as busy as we were this time around, we only had time to get to one, and it's easily our favorite. The Mob Museum, downtown, just off Fremont Street. It's been five years since my wife has been there, and at least three since I've been, so we thought it would be fun to go check it out and see what had changed. For those not in the know, the Mob Museum, or as it's officially called, the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement, follows the history of organized crime not just in Las Vegas, but all across the United States and around the world. It even goes as far as tracking the roots of organized crime in Europe and how it made its way to North America through immigration to the U.S., it also covers the history of law enforcement and organized crime from the early days of the original G-Men like Elliot Ness and J. Edgar Hoover, right up to present day organized crime and the fight against the Mexican opium trade and the Colombian cartels. Some of the exhibits on display include cool artifacts like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre Wall, Al Capone's phone booth, Bugsy Siegel's sunglasses, and the original check written by Billy Wilkerson to purchase the land for the Flamingo. They've also got an excellent exhibit on organized crime in the movies and TV, covering everything from Casino and The Godfather to Breaking Bad and Narcos, with some great screen-used props and costumes. We wrapped up our time at the Mob Museum with a visit to The Underground, a speakeasy-style bar located in the basement of the museum. They've got a huge cocktail menu featuring moonshine and spirits made in the on-site distillery, which you can tour, as well as some light bites to soak up the alcohol. The Underground has live entertainment on the weekends, and you can access The Underground without having to pay for a museum admission. If you want to know more about the Mob Museum and the Underground, you can visit their website at themobmuseum.org. All right, so I'm just about done with this trip report, but as per usual, I do have a few little tidbits that I wanted to share with you before I run. First off, the Bally's to Horseshoe transition is in full swing, and the resort is now being officially referred to as Horseshoe Las Vegas. Their website and social media is all Horseshoe Las Vegas, and on the inside of the resort, signage is pretty much all changed over to the Horseshoe. 
The monorail stop is now called the Horseshoe Paris Station, and all the new decorating is in place with new carpets and paint schemes. Outside, it still looks like Bally's for the most part, with some painting completed and a fair bit of construction underway out front. If you had a Bally's reservation, it has now been changed over to a Horseshoe reservation. F1 fans have something to get excited about. Construction is well underway on the Formula One pit and paddock complex just off the strip at the corner of Harmon and Koval. The structure will serve as the main garage area for the race teams, as well as the starting grid area and the primary hospitality suites. Word is it'll also house a permanent F1 attraction outside of race week. I can't stress this enough. If there are specific restaurants that you want to eat at on your next Vegas trip, make your reservations well in advance. My wife and I had to adjust our plans a few times based on table availability. So again, if you've got your heart set on a particular place, make your booking ASAP. Let's talk tipping for a second. I feel like it's getting out of hand. Seems like literally everyone wants a tip. Let me make it clear. I have zero problem tipping when it's deserved. I will tip bartenders, cocktail waitresses, the server at my restaurant, bell desk attendants, my rideshare drivers, and anyone else who goes out of the way to help. And I'll generally tip at least 20%, even more if the service is absolutely outstanding. That being said, I'm not tipping at Starbucks, I'm not tipping at Earl of Sandwich, and I'm not tipping at the bagel shop in the airport. Even tipping housekeeping is questionable for me, especially when I've only had them in the room once during a five-night stay just to change the towels and empty the trash. I don't know, maybe that makes me an asshole, but I really do feel like tipping is getting out of control. And finally, let's talk rideshare. I've seen a few people in various Vegas Facebook groups that I'm in talk about long waits for rideshare along with poor service and inflated prices. This whole trip, The longest we waited was about 15 minutes, and that was on our first day when we were at the airport. Otherwise, we never waited more than about five minutes for a ride, even when we were downtown at Circa and off strip at Red Rock Resort. As for the poor service, we never really experienced that. We did have one car show up that was dirty on the outside and smelly on the inside, but that was about it. And regarding the price, I didn't notice much of a difference from my last trip back in July, although we did spend a little more on rideshare this trip since we were doing less walking than normal. Usually we'll walk upwards of 20 kilometers a day, but with my wife recovering from a foot injury, we only walked an average of about eight or 10 kilometers a day. And that brings to a close another world famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report. If you want to learn more about our hotel, the shows we saw, and the restaurants we ate at, be sure to visit the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com for links to everything mentioned here. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at jeff at jeffdoesvegas.com. 
In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. 